Hi everybody, this is Quentin Tarantino and I am the writer of True Romance. And so let's start this off. Uh, True Romance was the first script I ever wrote. Um, I had um, I had written a like a bunch of scripts from um, uh, God, what was it? I guess from like uh, 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 the seventh grade. <laughs> All right, when I guess how old were you were in the seventh grade? I don't know, like fourteen, fifteen. Um, uh, till the time I wrote True Romance, but I never finished any of them. All right, uh, I would. I don't know how many scripts I tried to write. I don't know, maybe like uh, I don't know, probably not thirty, but but you know, up there about. And uh, I always got to about page thirty, and then I could never go any further because uh, not because I would just run, not because I would run out of ideas necessarily. I never had. Uh, it was more a situation that I think a lot of writers. When I read, especially screenplays, the problem is, is it was more like I wanted to write a script than I had necessarily a burning story to tell. And so what I would do is I would write scripts and I'd get up to like, you know, page, you know, 20, 25, 30. And, and then uh, once it started getting to be hard work, I'd like, I'd lose interest. But the main thing that would always derail me is I'd be writing a script and I'd get up to that point and then I would like all of a sudden think of this really gr other great idea that was just so much better than the one that I was working on, all right, that I would just uh, uh, kept hopping from thing to thing and never finish anything. And then, uh, after years of that, just having, you know, tons of pieces of material up to, you know, 30, uh, I had a, um, I wrote a script um, called The Open Road, all right, and... And that got me past the page 30 point, all right? Uh, but the script started becoming literally of, uh, like, you know, my great American novel that never got made, all right? And so, like, uh, in like at least in handwritten pages, it was getting up to page 500, all right? So, like, okay, well, I've broken that. Uh, I've broken that page 30 barrier. Now I got to, like, you know, write a script that's, like, uh, could, like, be the, the length of a movie. And so... Um, uh, but I knew after I'd written The Open Road that the next time I tried to write something, that this would be the one. And uh, and it was. The very next one I tried was True Romance. But there was also something else about True Romance that led up to it. Is I was, um, I had tried to direct a movie. Uh, and actually, oddly enough, the movie I tried to direct it was called My Best Friend's Birthday. I tried to do it on 16mm. Uh, and that scene that we just saw, the, um, uh, the scene about how I'd fuck Elvis, cause that was a monologue from My Best Friend's Birthday that I said in the movie. And, um, and the thing is, uh, I had uh, shot it for a couple weekends, uh, and then uh, over the next three years, financing it from my video archives minimum wage job I would just shoot every few weekends on this movie alright and uh, basically I worked on it for about like three and a half years alright just financing it piecemeal you know a couple hundred dollars at a time and then what ended up happening is I put it together and I kind of didn't have what I thought I had it wasn't that good and um, so I just decided well you know what okay um, it just turned out to be nothing but after being depressed for like a little bit, I got over my depression. I'm pretty good about that. And I looked at the good side of it. And the good side of it was the fact that I had, um, I had taught myself how to make a movie. All right. And, uh, I didn't, and I didn't have to go to film school to do it. You know, if you try to make a movie, you'll, you know, when you get through, I don't know if you'll have anything worth showing for it, but you will have, uh, uh, you'll know how to make a movie. Um, now maybe the next time you do it, you can do it good, which is my situation.
So after that, I decided, okay, you know what? Uh, let me try to write a real movie. All right, not that I'm trying to do it, you know, not done piecemeal on weekends. Let me try to write a real movie and get the money for it and, you know, do it. And, like, at that time, my heroes as far as, not even so much as filmmakers, but as far as, like, they'd done it, all right, was uh, uh, the Coen brothers with Blood Simple. So I was like, okay, we're going to do True Romance like they did Blood Simple and do it for, like, a million three or something and we can get the money from doctors and lawyers or something. And, and Stanley Margolis was one of the guys we went to to try to get the money. That's how he's still involved. His name is up on the credits. And uh, uh, I, so I wrote True Romance, you know, and, and it was it was really different. Here I am. Uh, it was really different than all the other scripts I had tried to write, because I just knew I was going to finish this one. It was a thing where I had a story to tell. I wasn't just trying to write a screenplay in order to make a movie, and so um, I wrote it. And uh, then I tried for years, uh, and so this was my first script ever done, ever finished. So then uh, uh, I wrote it, and uh, then tried basically for the next five years to try to get it made, and it, it never happened. Now, I'll go back to the story in a second, but this is from um, the Japanese film The Street Fighter, starring uh, Sonny Chiba. And it's funny, I've actually seen this triple feature of Street Fighter, Return of the Street Fighter, and Sister Street Fighter. And since the time we've made this movie, these films were like really almost impossible to find on video. And actually, the Street Fighter was rated, was the first film rated X for violence ever in the history of uh, America. Uh, there's been a few since, but Street Fighter was the one. And then after its initial release, they cut it down to an R and cut it all up, and that was the only version of the movie available. Uh, now, they've come out with all three of them on video in their original versions. So actually, if you at home want to have uh, the Clarence Alabama date, all right, of watching a, uh, the Kung Fu triple feature, then you can, uh, um, in the privacy of your own home. Except it won't be as much fun as it would be at a grindhouse. Um, uh, in fact, I have kind of a uh, semi-story of uh, some film geek friends of mine they are into the stuff I'm into. When they were shooting this, that theater is, um, that they're at is the Vista. It's literally on, this, on the corner of where Hollywood Boulevard and Sunset Boulevard meet. It actually used to be a gay porno movie theater you know, years and years and years and years and years ago, way before this movie was made. Uh, then it was Revival House, and now it's uh, yeah, actually for the first one theater again. But when they were making the movie... They, you know, they had the the marquee on the on the uh, uh, on the Vista marquee and everything, and they had some weird posters in the in the thing. And some film geek friends of mine were driving by, and they go, "Oh my God, a Street Fighter triple feature!" And they came in there and they go, "No, no, we're not showing it. We're making a movie." And they go, "Oh, this is Quentin's fucking movie. Oh, God damn it! All right, all right." So they walked away. Um, so I, I tried to make True Romance for like uh, a, a a long uh, you know five years and never got it going. And what happened was, and believe me, any people out here who watching this movie and like the script and stuff, well, just know, if you had met me, you know, during those five years, I would have sold you the script. I would have, I, I, I would have sold it for uh, the most bargain basement price, just to prove to myself that I was a writer. After I tried to get get it made for like a long time to no avail. But no one was taking it. A lot of people had read this script and everything, and some people liked it, and some people didn't, actually. Uh, I mean, a lot of people actually didn't, because, you know, it's, it's funny. Now people kind of are, uh, you know, into my voice a little bit, but, uh, or have been, but uh, then my voice was so new that it wasn't that, oh, this is a new, fresh voice. It's like, I'm doing it wrong. 
I'm not writing a script the way I'm supposed to write it. And so I had to deal with that for a long time. Now, um, okay, get off, off of my overall thing and jump into this, this specific scene right here. Uh, this scene is kind of interesting. Um, there's actually a second part to this scene, which I have no idea whether or not Tony ever filmed or not. Um, but it's, uh, he asked uh, Alabama these questions about herself, all right, which is actually pretty much taken from the, um, the Playboy centerfold uh, questionnaire. Um, uh, I mean, he even says, uh, what are your turn-ons, what are your turn-offs, that kind of thing. And, um, uh, and then at the end of this scene in the script... And it seems really crazy, all right? So I have no problem by Tony dropping it off. But is he, uh, But she proceeds to tell a story of how she doesn't know who she is, and she got hit by amnesia, and she's been walking around, wandering the streets without a memory. And uh, she's just bullshitting him, all right? You know, and Clarence catches that he's bullshitting her, and, like, they tease. But it was like, that's the way the scene initially ended. But one thing that's kind of funny is... Uh, it was about like six years after I wrote it that the film got made. And so when you listen to her answers to the questions, a little of them seem kind of like cool and retro. But when she, but when I wrote it, they weren't cool and retro. They were literally, you know, uh, uh, you know uh, she, he says, "What's your favorite? Uh, who's your favorite actor?" And she says, "Burt Reynolds." All right. Well, Burt Reynolds was a big star when I wrote this script. <laughs> That we, that, you know, uh, uh, he was a, a star of the people. So it wasn't like this, like she was like being all cool and retro. All right. And the second thing he asked her, uh, well, one of the other things he asked her is like, you know, who do you find sexy? And she says, Mickey Rourke. All right. Well, Mickey Rourke was the man when I wrote this script. So again, that wasn't crazy either. Um, now, the thing about True Romance is it's the closest thing. It's the most autobiographical film that I that I that I've ever wrote I mean all my stuff that I've done you know is you know I'm all over it and I've always you know sometimes people will I don't know I don't know what people say but the thing is my, my scripts are, are I'm all over my scripts and especially if you know me you read them and you see it and um, I always feel that as a writer you should almost when you finish a piece of work you should almost be embarrassed by it a little bit because you were just uh, revealing yourself all right, uh, the people will read it and they're going to know too much about you. I think if your writing's going to have anything, that should be the case. But just like, you know, many first-time novelists and, you know, some first-time screenwriters, uh, uh, my first script was about me, all right? And year, now, I look at, now I look at true romance. And I, you know, I've always felt this way, but it, it, this is a situation where it's gotten deeper and deeper and deeper for me is when I look at true romance, I'm incredibly moved by my perception of myself, of Clarence, because that was kind of me. At 25, which is what the age I was when I wrote it, that was me. Now I'm, you know, a lot of that guy is still me, is still in me, but I'm not him anymore. You know, I'm different. All right, I'm you know I'm 36. All right, so it's like um, it's you know uh, um, 
you know, I'm, you, you know what I'm trying to say? It's, it's like I'm a, 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 the shell of me is there. So it's like almost like I get to revisit who I was when I watched True Romance. And, and even all my, uh, you know, worked at a video store, video archives, and if you know anything about me, you probably heard about that. And, um, and all my friends who work at the video store, who worked at that video store, they love this movie because it is so me, and it's kind of so them. And I mean, it's funny, because like, you know, None of this stuff happened to me, all right? You know, I never met some, you know, cool hooker or pretty much any girl around that time. Uh, and, um, not at the time I wrote this, anyway. And, um, uh, and that's part of this movie, all right, is the fact that uh, I was 25 and I really never had a girlfriend. Um, and there was something of, you know... So this is sort of like... Not that I ever really wanted... A girlfriend like Alabama. I've always been attracted to uh, you know uh, smart women. Not that Alabama is dumb, but you know she, you know she, she's not an intellect first kind of person. She's an emotion first kind of person, you know. And I t I tend to you know I, I want to find a woman who's smarter than I am. But um, so it's not like she's my dream girl or anything. But the dream part about it was one just that she was a girl. All right, <laughs> he kind of quotes that line in here. He goes, "Hey, I was so happy when you took off your dress and you didn't have a dick." Uh, so the dream part was that the fact that she was a girl. All right, and that she was kind of cute, and that she like that she liked Clarence. She and ends up falling in love with Clarence just because he's nice to her, because he, the way he treats her, because of who he is. And, you know, it was really funny because it was very important to me that Clarence not be played by, like, a big old handsome movie star that you just feel could kind of, kind of you know, get anything he wanted. It was important that Clarence be a minimum wage kid. All right, you know, like me and a bunch of my friends. And Clarence could have even been a little older than this. Clarence could have been like, you know, 29 and still stuck in a minimum wage job. Um, actually, when I was writing the script years and years and years ago, it was uh, like my two people, and they were more or less the right age for it at that time, was Joan Cusack as uh, Alabama and uh, Robert Carradine as Clarence. Uh, you know, they were too old by the time we made it, and um, uh, and I can't even imagine anybody but uh, 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 Patricia playing Alabama. She's wonderful, and 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 Christian is terrific in the movie. And one of the things that I really liked about Christian is that Christian's a really, there's a real handsome guy, and he's a real sexy guy, and gals were really into him. All right, but he doesn't he's not really playing his sexiness in this movie or his handsomeness all right he takes his movie he, he kind of scrapes off his movie star uh, veneer a little bit he seems like a minimum wage kid he seems like a kid you could walk into a, a video store or a comic book store or any kind of store and see behind the counter and that was really important to me um, so so just so you know so uh, just the idea of, of being in love and having a cool girlfriend, you know, that would just, you know, be, you know, and it was also a big thing. It's almost been in all, every one of my uh, movies I've ever written about couples, all right, uh, is not just that the girl is your girlfriend and you're her boyfriend and she's, you know, girlfriend-boyfriend stuff. It was the fact that the girl was your pal. All right, you know, she was your friend. You could um, hang out with her like you could hang out with It's either called the, um, and that's part of the bomb for walking scene, or it's called the Sicilian scene. All right, as time has gone on. The fact that she could, like, listen to the different, you know, uh, liked his kind of music, and this is 
um, I, I, um, one of my proudest moments uh, of my entire career. Uh, uh, this scene. The scene actually kind of, the speech, the Sicilian speech came about uh, in real life through two friends. One was, um, uh, we're kind of badass older black guy that was uh, kind of like, um, there's my mom, and then her best friend was a woman named Jackie, and she was, uh, she was black, and she was like my second mom, kind of, you know, all, you know, through my entire childhood and teenage years. And she had a brother um, who was no longer with us anymore, who had spent some time in jail, and uh, his name was um, Don, uh, or uh, uh, Big D was actually his uh, most commonly used nickname. And uh, Big D has shown up in uh, a lot of my movies. Uh, Sam Jackson's uh, little bit that mostly got cut out by the MPAA uh, in the opening scene with Dretzel. He's playing Big D. Uh, that's his, if you read the script, that's his character's name is Big D. And, um, and he used to tell me uh, uh, about history and stuff and he told me way back when all right like literally when i was about like you know 10 or 11 or something like that about how uh uh the moors conquered sicily and how the moors were black and they started fucking the sicilian women and that's why uh sicilians look the way they do today and i never forgot i always thought it was kind of interesting and uh <laughs> And then I have, uh, then say, cut to years later, I'm like uh, 23, 24, and uh, uh, my roommate, and uh, still a friend of mine to, to this day, and he was Sicilian, and I'm like fucking with him and teasing him, all right? And, uh, and I do completely impromptu the Sicilian speech in this movie for the first time. And when I finished it, I was like, hey, that's a good scene, you know, uh, that's a good speech, you know, okay, note to myself, remember that. And uh, so writing True Romance, and this wasn't me even trying to plug it in, it just kind of naturally worked. So I wrote it, and I uh, was pretty happy with it. And now, uh, I think this scene, I, I think a case could be made. <laughs> That this scene is almost too good. All right, it, it's 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 you know uh, you know every once in a while it might not be the great best thing to have like the best scene in the movie happen you know uh, uh, before uh, uh, before the midway point. All right, you know uh, uh, actually I would actually say most other movies probably couldn't even survive a scene like this because this scene would just be so much better than anything else in the movie that you know you'd want to go home after the scene was over. True Romance is so much fun and lively in the way, and the actors are so good in it and everything that actually the movie survives the scene. All right, um, and you, you know what I'm talking about if you've ever watched a movie and it has this great scene and you kind of know you're never going to see scene that good again. All right, uh, you know True Romance actually. I mean, the fact that almost the fact that True Romance can survive this scene is actually a testament to Tony and, and the actors in the film. Um, and uh, but and what I'm saying about how good I think this scene is. I'm not talking about me, really. I'm, I'm, I mean, it's, um, this is like just a completely beautiful, I think, four-way ensemble between what I wrote, the way Christopher Walken played it, the way Dennis Hopper played it, 
and the way Tony Scott directed it, I think it's 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 uh, just a four man thing, and um, it, and was wild except for the little except for the little uh, uh, um, they have one little improv in in, in the scene when uh, Dennis Hopper calls and uh, uh, says, you know, your part eggplant, and then Christopher Walken says, well, you're a cantaloupe. All right, that was a little improv bit, but aside from that. Everything they said in the scene was scripted. So much so that, I mean, Christopher Walken has so much dialogue in this. And I almost got embarrassed the first time I saw the scene. I almost got embarrassed because he remembered, he memorized every line. Every single little tiny word he said, and he said perfectly. And it was almost like kind of almost intimidating that such a terrific actor would uh, 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 take my work so seriously as to remember, you know, as to completely remember, never uh, uh, make up anything, never smooth out everything, you know, just say every, every so, the, uh, and they, you know, he did them all. And it was, it was, it was quite terrific. And I, I really think that this scene could be, uh, should, could and should be put in a time capsule as far as like um, just great acting. All right, if you want to just see great actors being great, then this is the scene. Um, and uh, you know what? I think I'm going to stop talking and put these headphones back on and just listen to it for the rest of the scene. That's why. Now, if you want to see, <clears throat> if you want to do a little history perspective on this. Um, it's funny, this actually has made a lot of people who never knew this go to the history books and look it up, all right, and particularly a lot of blacks. Go to, uh, say, I didn't know that that was the case. And they look it up and they realize, oh my God, that's the truth. Um, and actually it was even kind of funny because uh, I wasn't in the room, unfortunately, but uh, uh, when True Romance came out on video, my mom and Jackie... And Big D watched it in their living room, and Big D hadn't seen it at the theaters. And is what well, Big D was still alive, and they were watching this scene. And this speech starts, and then and my mom told me, and I I can hear him say it. Big D was like, "Hey, you know that shit's true. Yeah, you know I told Quentin that shit. I told Quentin that shit when he's just a little bitty boy. He's like 11 years old. I remember telling him that shit, but that shit's true. I'm glad that shit's out there. People should know that shit." Um, uh, Big D, wherever you are right now, God fucking bless you. Um, and uh, uh, anybody who's uh, uh, interested in seeing, I think the closest thing that they've ever come to doing a cinematic treatment of the Moors is a really cool Viking movie, all right, directed by uh, the cinematographer, who actually was a terrific director. I actually like him more as a director than a cinematographer to tell you the truth, Jack Cardoff. And he did a movie called The Long Ships. And uh, in it, it depicts uh, uh, the, Viking, uh, Viking, uh, the Viking War, the Vikings fighting uh, the Muslim Moors. All right, and Richard uh, Woodmark plays the leader of the Vikings, and Sidney uh, uh, Poitier plays the leader of the Moors. And Sidney Poitier is the bomb in the movie. He is so terrific in it. It's so great. So that's really the only completely 
full-on movie version that kind of shows the Moors, all right? Uh, and also in the film, it's very, in that movie, The Long Ship, it's also very interesting, is Sidney Poitier's wife is played by the Italian actress uh, Rosanna Scafino. And, uh, and so, like, <laughs> literally, he's got a Sicilian wife in the movie. <laughs> so if you want to take this, uh, if you want to take uh, this uh, history lesson just a, a, a one step back, then uh, look at Jack Cardiff's The Long Ship starring um, uh, Sidney Poitier and um, uh, Richard Woodmark. So, okay, so this is Clarence in Alabama arriving in Hollywood. Now, okay, now, coming up here is the first appearance by Brad Pitt, uh, the roommate Floyd. Uh, there he was. We saw him in the, in the right-hand corner there. Just sitting on the couch, smoking a bong. I didn't even hear. Now, literally, all through my 20s, to tell you the truth, pretty much until I sold the script to True Romance, uh, I always had to live with roommates. Huh? All right, and this was sort of my vision of most of the roommates, or a lot of roommates that I had, is just guys that just planted themselves on the couch, and uh, and that's what they were, all right, as if they grew out of the couch and they never quite got up and just... just constantly watch TV all the time. This scene is when we come back from the flashback, not the flashback, because well, it sort of is, all right, uh, of Clarence telling the story of how he met Alabama and how he met, and how he got Dretzel's Coke. This is the come, this is when we come back into the throw, so this is like scene is like literally the beginning of the third act. And pretty much from this point on, this is the way the movie was. Right, now we're kind of caught up with the movie structure. The structure of the original script. This is the beginning of the third act. All right, um, so now the thing is, I'm really proud of the fact that when I write screenplays and everything, that like all the characters, even Dick Ritchie, is like, you know, a full-bodied, full-blown character, all right? The closest thing to just a sketch that I wrote, all right, was Floyd. There wasn't a whole lot to Floyd. He, you know, he was a stoner. He's there sitting there on the couch watching TV, taking bong hits and everything. That was all there, but it was just a sketch. Brad Pitt took my little sketch and almost, as far as I'm concerned, steals the show. After the Sicilian scene, he almost steals the third act. He's so terrific in it. It's, you know, I, I, you know to me, anyway, and he since then proved it time and time and time again. But to me, he completely proved his chops as an actor in this movie because I know what I wrote and he did so so much more than what I wrote all right uh, that I just give him nothing but kudos all right He's, uh, he is the man in this movie it's one of the most it's one of the most memorable characters in the film and I really do I think from the third act he does kind of steal the steal the show um, and there's even an interesting thing about that, actually. Uh, another interesting take on that. I remember, uh, like I told you, my whole cast went to see uh, um, the premiere of Reservoir Dogs, um, the premiere of, sorry, premiere of True Romance at, um, when we were in uh, rehearsals for um, Pulp Fiction. And the thing is, uh, 
there's this, you know, I think one of the, 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 the coolest comedy moments as far as like watching the movie with an audience is uh, people just keep showing up at the apartment and always having to deal with Floyd and Floyd kind of sending them on their way. And it's a really great joke and gag that like it worked in the script, but it works 15 times better in the movie. That just kind of accumulates until by the end, the audience was literally pissing their pants laughing by the time that, you know, all the... Uh, 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 a blue uh, 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 um, Sasadi's uh, Christopher Walken's uh, gangster show up uh, at uh, Brad Pitt's place, uh, and Uma Thurman, who saw the film, we were talking about it the next day, and she had a very interesting take on it. She said that uh, well, there's a reason why the audience just clicks into Floyd. Because Floyd is actually telling the audience something. This is her theory, and it's a good theory. Uh, she says, it's like Floyd is telling us, the audience, how to enjoy this movie, how to watch this movie. You're an audience member, and you're watching it. You know what? Floyd's got the right idea. He ain't taking it all that seriously. He's just enjoying it. He's just taking his bong hits, and he's just dealing with what comes along. And he's having a great time. And... You know, almost in a weird way, Floyd almost becomes even more than Clarence in Alabama, the audience identification figure, as far as the whole third act is concerned. It's an interesting theory. Um, so, uh, now, this scene is very, uh, it's the same dialogue, but it's very different um, than in the script. In the script, I think they were all at the L.A. County, they're at the L.A. Zoo, and they're just like walking around. Tony put it on a roller coaster the, to give the movie like some momentum and like you know, kind of cool, fast, cutty stuff. And it, it works really well, actually. I, I think it was, a, it was a good change on his part. All right, so then we're going to go into this scene now. Now, let me talk about something else. Is, um, you know, True Romance was not a financial success when it opened um, uh, in... Uh, what was it? Uh, I think 93. When it opened in 93. And it was funny. It was, a, it, was, it was a weird situation when it came out and didn't do well. Because um, I'm literally in pre-production on Pulp Fiction. All right. Reservoir Dogs had already come out. And by the way, one of the most important and defining things about my career is... The movie that put me on the map, the movie where people, and particularly critics, first learned my name, was uh, a movie I directed. If the first time they ever heard of me was True Romance, for a while anyway, I always would have been a writer trying to direct. But because my first movie, that they, the first one out of the gate, was one that I wrote and directed, from that point on they always thought of me as a filmmaker, not a writer just trying to direct cool because when writing Reservoir Dogs it literally was oh this is not just some script I'm trying to sell I know I'm going to make this this is doable this is the first time in my life I'm ever going to have money I'm going to use it to make a movie with and um, you know so that was basically the idea but we ended up getting more money and we actually were able to make it like a, uh, like a real movie which is a whole other story but during that time okay I meet Tony Tony reads Reservoir Dogs he wants to do it I say no I can't uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do this but I send him uh, True Romance and Natural Born Killers to read, see if he wants to do those. And I really have always thought about those first three scripts I wrote. You know, that's, that's, that, they are completely my first chapter as an artist, 
uh, you know, in this industry, as an artist, my trajectory, everything, you know, my, my the original scripts for True Romance and Natural Born Killers and Reservoir Dogs, they all three kind of fit together. I don't mean like thematically or anything, but just of me and expressing myself and finding my voice. And so I, I uh, uh, he read True Romance, he read Natural Born Killers, he liked them both, but he really loved True Romance. He really, really loved it. And my thing was like, well, you know what? This other company has it. All right. So uh, why don't uh, uh, and uh, Tony Scott and so said, like, you know, encouraged him to go for it, and it. that's what happened. He went for it. All right, and and he got it. And so that uh, so that's how Tony got on this uh, got on the film. And now since then, a lot of people have asked me, um, do you do I wish I would have done it? And the truth of the matter is, I made Reservoir Dogs. Uh, Reservoir Dogs got made first. I made Reservoir Dogs, and then, then after in in the between, during the time I was writing Pulp Fiction, is when Tony made True Romance, and literally, on on the pre-production of Pulp Fiction, we're like driving around doing a location scout, and I'm seeing the posters for True Romance. You know, like going to open up in the next week. I'm seeing the posters for True Romance up on the on the streets, and it was just so wild to see all these posters of Clarence in Alabama as I'm going. You know, as I'm in pre-production, I'm making Pulp Fiction, and not only that, I had already cast Pulp Fiction by this time. So, the first time I saw the movie from beginning to end was at the premiere, and I brought my cast to the premiere. We were in rehearsal, so my entire, pretty much my entire cast in Pulp Fiction showed up at the. Uh, uh, True Romance uh, premiere, and we all watched it together, and it was it was a quite magical evening, and everyone really liked it. Think what you did, what? And um, but the thing is, Tony was so completely the right guy to do this movie. I was the right guy to direct the movie at the time I wrote it, but I wrote this to be my first movie. All right, and your first movie is different from your second movie. It's different from your third movie. It was supposed to be, you know, it was supposed to work and everything. But it was also supposed to be a little show-offy, a little, gaunt, you know, throw throw down the gauntlet a little bit. And you know, I've I've studied directors' careers, so I, you know, there is, you know, I think about, you know, there's the first movie, and then there's the second movie, and then there's the third movie, and then there's the fourth movie. You know, and they're all, you know, different. They all have a different intention. And uh, so, True Romance was written to be my first movie. Couldn't get it going. So then I wrote Natural Born Killers to be my first movie. All right, couldn't get it going. And then I wrote Reservoir Dogs to be my first movie. Got it going. And what had happened was uh, Tony's partner at the time, and one of the producers in this film, was a really great guy named Bill Unger. Oh, by the way, let me stop here for just two seconds. Um, Burl Ives singing Itty Bitty Tear. Um, I wrote like I do in most of my scripts. I wrote little music cues, you know, like different songs to play. And Tony pretty much, you know, he picked his own songs. All right, this is the only one of my songs that I wrote in the script, all right, uh, that, uh, that, that uh, uh, Tony kept. He liked Burl Ives singing Itty Bitty Tear. I wish it was on the soundtrack album, but it wasn't. But, it's, uh, but this is the only one of my music cues that, that uh, uh, survived. And so the thing is, Bill Unger... The producer of the movie, well, they were just starting trying to get the movie going, all right, um, said um, uh, that he, uh, oh, Quentin, would you be interested, you know, Tony would produce the movie if you want to direct it, because they could get it going with me now, I just done Reservoir Dogs, and, and my answer was no, all right, uh, and this was, you know, Tony offering it, Tony and Bill offering it to me. And I said no, because I, I had emotionally moved on, all right? Uh, 
I needed to make my second movie, which was Pulp Fiction. This was supposed to be my first movie, so this it would kind of be taking. Uh, I'm talking about yeah, just for my trajectory, it just wasn't the same thing. And um, but also, and here's why Tony should have done it. Look, I love true romance, and I never stopped loving it and everything. But uh, there was a time for me to make it, and that time had passed. Tony had the love and the passion for it that it needed. All right, I had a respect for it and secret love, but I kind of love it now more. And I, you know, and I have to almost think that I actually even love now the movie more because I didn't make it. That I get to see my world through somebody else's eyes, and and uh, and this is going to surprise people and everything. I was never on the set. I never visited the set one day. I was never, ever, ever, ever on the set. I talked to Tony a bunch in pre-production, and I talked to him in post-production. And that was it. I never went on the set, because my whole feeling about this is, if a writer is going to be involved with uh, a movie that somebody else is going to direct, then either she should be involved in a big way, where he's on the set every day, and he's on point with the director, all right, or not at all. All right. You know, you talk to them in the you know in the pre-production stage about the piece of material, and then you just let them do their thing. That really is my philosophy. And so I couldn't be on this on the on the uh, the set every day, and so uh, that was the avenue I decided to uh, to go. And uh, um, I, I couldn't be happier with it. But you know, but my again, uh, wrap this part up. My f- philosophical feelings about this stuff, as far as scripts are concerned, is more um, you know my scripts are concerned is. They're like girlfriends. Scripts you write are like girlfriends. And uh, the older scripts you write are like old girlfriends. And it's like, you know, there's the girls you marry and the girls you don't, all right? And um, it's like true romance was my old girlfriend. It was a great love, and we were together for a long time. But we never quite got married, all right? Hence, I didn't direct it. Never quite got married. So, she, you know, and um, Reservoir Dogs, Pulp Fiction, those were the girlfriends that I married, all right? And uh, uh, so um, I, couldn't have, I couldn't have put my old girlfriend in better hands than Tony. And it was also kind of great to see my world in this style because I don't shoot the way Tony does at all, all right? Um, and, you know, I, I've never in any movie have I ever used uh, smoke, <laughs> in a scene, all right, where they, they smoke up the set and, you know, fan it out and you have all this atmosphere hanging out in there. I've never done that at all, all right? Uh, and I don't like it when other people do it, but I love it when Tony does it. I think Tony does it great. I, uh, it's, it's, you know, and if, you know, sometimes people have, I've heard people say that they don't like it and they go, well, you know, if you don't like that kind of stuff, then you just, you just don't like Tony's work because that, that's his style, that's his look, all right? I don't, I don't like dig it when a lot of other guys do it, but I love it when Tony does it. It's just a great look. And if ever in a, in a scene that I direct, if I ever do that kind of look, then I'm literally trying to capture a Tony Scott look. I'll be telling the cinematographer, okay, I want this to look like a Tony Scott movie. Now, back to the movie here uh, at hand. This is the most single autobiographical scene I've ever written. Um, not that any of this happened or anything, but this is sort of the... But, but this was me dealing with my stepfather. I never met my real father, but I had a stepfather 
Kurt. And, uh, and you know, he was my father for basically, you know, from, uh, I think, from two, you know, I started having a consciousness, from two to, you know, uh, like, ten or something. And then uh, he split. But, you know, in that, you know, in that infancy and toddler time, you know, that was my father. And this speech right here, this speech right here that he's saying, all right, that's my speech to him. That would be me talking to my stepfather in this situation. And, uh, you know, everyone got on your case. I never did. Everyone blamed you about this. I never did. You know, I tried to make your thing as, you know, as, as easy as possible, your responsibility. You know, if you don't want to do it, fuck off. All right. Um, but what's interesting, I always had a really great relationship with his brother, which is my uncle Cliff. So it's very interesting. And a couple of things like this happen in a few other scripts. And I would always write Kurt, but call him Cliff. It's just a uh, it's kind of interesting thing. Um, actually, this is kind of semi-autobiographical, too. Uh, this is me in my 20s trying to be an actor in Los Angeles, all right? Uh, uh, sitting with zillions of other guys in uh, uh, casting office, just trying out for, you know, hood number two, all right, in a... Um, uh, T.J. Hooker or, you know, uh, 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 New York bank robber number three in an episode of Dukes of Hazard or something. That was kind of a takeoff on this stuff. And, you know, this, you know, it's funny, but it's not really a takeoff. It's pretty much the way it is, the, the casting process. Now, the original structure of the script for True Romance is very different from the movie. The way it worked, even though it has almost identically the same scenes, I mean, really, it's, except for the ending, it was the structure that Tony didn't use. Everything else, I mean, God, he did exactly what I wrote. I mean, it was, it's pretty good. And it's all the scenes are there. They're just in different order. The way it worked initially was it would start with uh, the Elvis, uh, I'd fuck Elvis speech. Then there was the credits. Then there was the Dretzel pussy-eating speech. And we don't know who, who's this guy and he kills all those other guys. And we're like, what the fuck's going on? Right, we still don't know what's going on. I like that. Don't know what's going on, but it's all entertaining. Then the next scene after the Dretzel pussy-eating scene is Clarence in Alabama showing up at Clarence's father's house, Des Hopper. And, uh, and so the whole, like, story more or less about uh, uh, Dretzel, uh, you know, her being his pimp and all that blah, 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 and the cocaine and all that stuff, all right, was told, uh, you just kind of hear it through Clarence's, slightly Clarence's version, but you don't quite hear the whole thing. But we don't know what's going on. We don't know what's going on, all right? And we only have uh, um, Clarence's slight version. So when we were watching this scene, we don't really know who to believe or what's going on. Just the, the seem, do kids seem like, like sweet kids, all right? So they split. Then, you know, uh, he, he calls Dick Ritchie. Was it going to be coming up? Then... There's this, there's the, uh, uh, the infamous or famous or whatever, um, Christopher Walken, uh, Dennis Hopper scene. Now, how the structure really affects us in a big way, the biggest difference between the way the movie works and the way the structure works, is we don't know Clarence's story. We don't know exactly any of the whys of the wherefores about how he met Alabama, how uh, uh, he ended up taking the cocaine or anything. It's all just very sketchy. All right, all we have is the fact that we kind of like these two kids, even though we don't know anything about them. The biggest difference is, you know, 
audiences, as long as they're in good hands, they like being curious. They don't like to be told everything, all right? Uh, if they think that they're in good hands, if they think the storyteller will eventually take care of them, they can wait if they think, you know, uh, it's not a mistake, if they think it's on purpose. And so Christopher Walken comes in, and he gives us our first real information about what happened. But his information is like, okay, here's what happened. You know, your dumb fuck son and his whore come in there blazing. They found out we were going to do a cocaine deal. They came in there, they shot everybody, killed everybody, completed a total fucking massacre, and they took the dope and ran. So that's the first time we've actually heard complete information about exactly what happened. And, and so, like, our, our you know, we're like, uh, we're, you know, our thoughts should be like, they did that? They're that crazy? They're that homicidal? All right, that was supposed to be the idea behind that. Uh, then, from that sequence, then we have Clarence arriving in, um, uh, uh, whatchamacallit, uh, Los Angeles in Hollywood. All right, and he gets together with Dick Ritchie, and then him and Dick in Alabama go out to Pink's hot dog stand, and they're talking, and then Dick literally says something to the effect of, oh, so, how, uh, uh, so how did you uh, meet Alabama? All right, and then he tells the story, all right, and that's the second act, and that starts with Clarence in the movie theater watching uh, the Street Fighter triple feature in Alabama coming in. And then that goes on through the whole second act of the movie until... Uh, um, uh, leading up to a, uh, a, a Clarence killing a, a Dretzel. And after the killing a Dretzel and finding the cocaine, from that point on, we pick up, this, we pick up the movie. Uh, it, it comes back uh, in the film to when uh, uh, Clarence shows Dick Ritchie the, uh, um, the cocaine and about how to sell it. And, and, and Dick Ritchie's like uh, uh, flipping out. All right. And then that's the third act. And, that, and from that point on, the movie's like, like it is. All right. Now, the way that three-act structure was supposed to work was this. The first act. Everybody in the movie, with the possible exception of uh, 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 Cliff Worley, uh, Dennis Hopper, knows so much more than we do. All the characters know what they're talking about. We don't know what they're talking about. All the characters know what they did, again, except for Cliff. We don't. All right, everybody in the movie is way ahead of the audience. All right, the second act, the audience hears the whole story and catches up with the characters. The third act, and this is where it starts getting kind of cool, and it's the only thing I missed, is now the audience, well, you know what, I say I miss it, but actually this still works. All right, uh, the audience now knows more than the characters. The audience is so much more hipper about what's going on and what's happening than any of the any one of the characters in the movie. All right? You know, the audience knows that uh, uh, Clarence, uh, 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 you know, uh, uh, Clarence isn't uh, uh, working for a cop or anything like that to try to sell this cocaine. The audience uh, uh, knows that uh, Bronson Spichaud's uh, Elliot Blitzer, all right, is uh, working with the cops. All right, the audience knows what's waiting for Clarence up in that uh, hotel room, but we don't. Uh, I mean, uh, the audience knows, but Clarence doesn't. You know, it's like everybody is ahead of every uh, of all the characters. So that was the way it was supposed to be. Act one, audience doesn't know shit. Characters know everything. Act two, audience catches up. Act three, audience knows 
far more than anybody in the movie. Okay. Now we come <laughs> to uh, um, just I mean what. Uh, it's either it's either like a, it, uh, I'd say like an official title, and it's not. That's what's actually what's kind of cool about and, it. It's kind of um, un, you know, when something gets an it's either called the Dennis Hopper Christopher Walken scene, or it's called the Sicilian scene. All right, as time has gone on, um, and this tell Luca to go outside, and you know what is. Um, I, I, um, one of my proudest moments uh, of my entire career. Uh, uh, this scene. The scene actually kind of, the speech, the Sicilian speech came about uh, in real life through two friends. One was um, uh, we're kind of badass older black guy that was uh, kind of like, um, there's my mom and then her best friend was a woman named Jackie and she was uh, she was black and she was like my second mom kind of, you know, all, you know through my entire childhood and teenage years and she had a brother um, who was no longer with us anymore, who'd spent some time in jail and uh, his name was um, Don uh, or uh, uh, Big D was actually his uh, most commonly used nickname. And uh, Big D has shown up in uh, a lot of my movies. Uh, Sam Jackson's uh, little bit that mostly got cut out by the MPAA uh, in the opening scene with Dretzel. He's playing Big D. Uh, that's his, if you read the script, that's his character's name is Big D. And, um, and he used to tell me uh, uh, about history and stuff and he told me way back when all right like literally when i was about like you know 10 or 11 or something like that about how uh uh the moors conquered sicily and how the moors were black and they start fucking the sicilian women and that's why uh sicilians look the way they do today and i never forgot i always thought it was kind of interesting and uh <laughs> And then I have, uh, then say, cut to years later, I'm like uh, 23, 24. And uh, uh, my roommate, and uh, still a friend of mine to, to this day, and he was Sicilian, and I'm like fucking with him and teasing him, all right? And, uh, and I do completely impromptu the Sicilian speech in this movie for the first time. And when I finished it, I was like, hey, that's a good scene, you know, uh, that's a good speech, you know, okay, note to myself, remember that. And uh, so writing true romance, and this wasn't me even trying to plug it in, it just kind of naturally worked. So I wrote it, and I uh, was pretty happy with it. And now, uh, I think this scene, I, I think a case could be made. <laughs> That this scene is almost too good. All right, it, it's 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 you know uh, you know every once in a while it might not be the great best thing to have like the best scene in the movie happen you know uh, uh, before uh, uh, before the midway point. All right, you know uh, uh, actually I would actually say most other movies probably couldn't even survive a scene like this because this scene would just be so much better than anything else in the movie that you know you'd want to go home after the scene was over. True Romance is so much fun and lively in the way, and the actors are so good in it and everything that actually the movie survives the scene, all right? Um, 
And you, you know what I'm talking about if you've ever watched a movie and it has this great scene and you kind of know you're never going to see scene that good again. All right. Uh, you know, Truman's actually, I mean, the fact that almost the fact that Truman can survive this scene is actually a testament to Tony and, and the actors in the film. Um, and, uh, but, and what I'm saying about how good I think this scene is, I'm not talking about me, really. I'm, I'm, I mean, it's, um, this is like just a completely beautiful, I think, four-way ensemble between what I wrote, the way Christopher Walken played it, the way Dennis Hopper played it, and the way Tony Scott directed it. I think it's, 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 uh, just a four-man thing. And, um, and was wild, except for the little, except for the little, uh, uh, um, they have one little improv in, in, in the scene when, uh, Dennis Hopper calls and uh, uh, says, you know, you're part eggplant. And then Christopher Walken says, well, you're a cantaloupe. All right. That was a little improv bit. But aside from that, everything they said in the scene was scripted. So much so that, I mean, Christopher Walken has so much dialogue in this. And I almost got embarrassed the first time I saw the scene. I almost got embarrassed because he remembered, he memorized every line, every single little tiny word he said, and he said perfectly. And it was almost like kind of almost intimidating that such a terrific actor would uh, 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 take my work so seriously as to remember, you know, as to completely remember, never uh, uh, make up anything, never smooth out everything, you know, just say every, every so, the, uh, and they, you know, he did them all. And it was, it was, it was quite terrific. And I, I really think that this scene could be, uh, should, could and should be put in a time capsule as far as like, um, just great acting. All right. If you want to just see great actors being great, then this is the scene. Um, and uh, you know what? I think I'm going to stop talking and put these headphones back on and just listen to it for the rest of the scene. That's why. Now, if you want to see, <clears throat> if you want to do a little history perspective on this, um, it's funny. This actually has made a lot of people who never knew this go to the history books and look it up. All right, in particularly a lot of blacks, go to uh, say, I didn't know that that was the case, and they look it up and they realize, oh my God, that's the truth. Um, and actually, it was even kind of funny because uh, I wasn't in the room, unfortunately. But uh, uh, when True Romance came out on video, my mom and Jackie. And Big D watched it in their living room, and Big D hadn't seen it at the theaters. And it was well, Big D was still alive, and they were watching this scene. And this speech starts, and then and my mom told me, and I I can hear him say it. Big D was like, "Hey, you know that shit's true. Yeah, I, you know, I told Quentin that shit. I told Quentin that shit when he's just a little bitty boy. He's like 11 years old. I remember telling him that shit, but that shit's true. I'm glad that shit's out there. People should know that shit." Um, ah, Big D, wherever you are right now, God fucking bless you. Um, and, uh, uh, anybody who's, uh, uh, interested in seeing, I think the closest thing that they've ever come to doing a cinematic treatment of the Moors 
is a really cool Viking movie, all right, directed by uh, the cinematographer, who actually was a terrific director. I actually like him more as a director than a cinematographer, to tell you the truth. Jack Cardoff. And he did a movie called The Long Ships. And uh, in it, it depicts uh, uh, the Viking, uh, Viking, uh, the Viking War, the Vikings fighting uh, the Muslim Moors. All right, and Richard uh, Woodmark plays the leader of the Vikings, and Sidney uh, uh, Poitier plays the leader of the Moors. And Sidney Poitier is the bomb in the movie. He is so terrific in it. It's so great. So that's really the only completely full-on movie version that kind of shows the Moors, all right? Uh, and also in the film, it's very, in that movie, The Long Ships, it's also very interesting, is Sidney Poitier's wife is played by the Italian actress uh, Rosanna Scafino. And, uh, and so, like, <laughs> literally, he's got a Sicilian wife in the movie. <laughs> So, if you want to take this, uh, if you want to take uh, this uh, history lesson, just a, a, a one step back, then uh, look at Jack Cardiff's *The Long Ship*, starring uh, uh, Sidney Poitier and um, uh, Richard Woodmark. So, okay, so this is Clarence in Alabama arriving in Hollywood. Now, okay, now, coming up here is the first appearance by Brad Pitt, uh, the roommate Floyd. Uh, there he was. We saw him in the, in the right-hand corner there. Just sitting on the couch, smoking a bong. I didn't even hear. Now, literally, all through my 20s, <laughs> to tell you the truth, pretty much until I sold the script to True Romance, uh, I always had to live with roommates. Huh? All right, and... This was sort of my vision of most of the roommates, or a lot of roommates that I had, is just guys that just planted themselves on the couch, and uh, and that's what they were, all right? As if they grew out of the couch and they never quite got up and just, just constantly watched TV all the time. This scene is when we come back from the flashback. Not the flashback, because well, it sort of is, all right? Uh, of Clarence telling the story of how he met Alabama and how he met and how he got Dretzel's Coke. This is the come. This is when we come back into the throw. So this is like scene is like literally the beginning of the third act, and pretty much from this point on, this is the way the movie was. Right, now we're kind of caught up with the movie structure, the structure of the original script. This is the beginning of the third act. All right. Um, so now the thing is, I'm really proud of the fact that when I write screenplays and everything, that like all the characters, even Dick Ritchie, is like you know a full-bodied, full-blown character. All right. The closest thing to just a sketch that I wrote, all right, was Floyd. There really wasn't a whole lot to Floyd. He, you know, he was a stoner. He's there sitting there on the couch watching TV, taking bong hits and everything. That was all there, but it was just a sketch. Brad Pitt took my little sketch and almost, as far as I'm concerned, steals the show after the Sicilian scene. He almost steals the third act. He's so terrific in it. It's, you know, I, I, you know to me, anyway, and he since then proved it time and time and time again. But to me, he completely proved his chops as an actor in this movie because I know what I wrote. 
And he did so, so much more than what I wrote, all right, uh, that I just give him nothing but kudos, all right? He's, uh, he is the man in this movie. It's one of the most... It's one of the most memorable characters in the film. And I really do. I think from the third act, he does kind of steal the, steal the show. Um, and there's even an interesting thing about that, actually. Uh, another interesting take on that. I remember, uh, like I told you, my whole cast went to see uh, um, the premiere of Reservoir Dogs, um, the premiere of, sorry, premiere of True Romance at, um, when we were in uh, rehearsals for um, Pulp Fiction. And the thing is, um, there's this, you know, I think one of the, the, the coolest comedy moments as far as like watching the movie with an audience is uh, people just keep showing up at the apartment and always having to deal with Floyd and Floyd kind of sending them on their way. And it's a really great joke and gag that like it worked in the script, but it works 15 times better in the movie. That just kind of accumulates until by the end, the audience was literally pissing their pants laughing by the time that you know all the uh, 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 blue uh, uh, um, Sasadi's uh, Christopher Walken's uh, gangsters show up uh, at uh, Brad Pitt's place uh, and Uma Thurman who saw the film we were talking about it the next day and she had a very interesting take on it she said that uh, well there's a reason why the audience just clicks into Floyd because Floyd is actually telling the audience something. This is her theory, and it's a good theory. Uh, she says, it's like Floyd is telling us, the audience, how to enjoy this movie, how to watch this movie. You're an audience member, and you're watching it. You know what? Floyd's got the right idea. He ain't taking it all that seriously. He's just enjoying it. He's just taking his bong hits, and he's just dealing with what comes along. And he's having a great time. And, you know, almost in a weird way, Floyd almost becomes even more than Clarence in Alabama, the audience identification figure, as far as the whole third act is concerned. It's an interesting theory. Um, so, uh, now, this scene is very... Uh, it's the same dialogue, but it's very different... Um, than in the script. In the script, I think they were all at the L.A. County, they're at the L.A. Zoo. And they're just like walking around. Tony put it on a roller coaster the, to give the movie like some momentum and like you know, kind of cool, fast cutty stuff. And it, it works really well, actually. I, I think it was, a, it was a good change on his part. All right, so then we're going to go into this scene now. Now, let me talk about something else. Is, um, you know, True Romance was not a financial success when it opened um, uh, in, uh, what was it, uh, I think 93. When it opened in 93. And it was funny. It was a, it was, it was a weird situation when it came out and didn't do well because um, I'm literally in pre-production on Pulp Fiction. All right. Reservoir Dogs had already come out. And by the way, one of the most important and defining things about my career is the movie that put me on the map, the movie where people, and particularly critics, first learned my name, was uh, a movie I directed. If the first time they ever heard of me was True Romance, for a while anyway, I always would have been a writer trying to direct. But because my first movie, that they, the first one out of the gate, was one that I wrote and directed... From that point on, they always thought of me uh, as a filmmaker, um, not a writer just trying to... Uh, true, you know, uh, uh, 
you could make a case that True Romance helped me at the time even more than it did Tony because now they'd heard my voice. The next year, True Romance came out, and that voice got you know solidified. All right, and so then it was you know they were they were waiting for uh, Pulp Fiction by the time it came out, and you know they had actually, they had had like a, a running jump on at least two movies before my movie. And even by that time, when Natural Born Killers came out, which was extremely different from my script, they could tell the difference. They could say, "Oh, this isn't like Reservoir Dogs, and this isn't like True Romance. This does seem monkeyed with." Uh, it's interesting in that in that regards. Now, uh, but the thing is, I remember. Okay, I'm in pre-production, getting ready to make my second movie. Um, Reservoir Dogs got all this attention and did pretty good. I did very good actually for an independent film. The independent films at that time weren't doing that. We, you know, we we're, we're do okay, but you know, the, you know, I think we made like we made three million dollars at the box office in America with uh, Reservoir Dogs, which was good for an independent film at that time. But it was a situation... Actually, it's good for this time now because they're, they're, they're most of them aren't making $3 million. All right, um, They're topping out at 800000 even though they get written about a lot. But it got such press that everyone thought it was going to set new records and it was going to be the smash hit, you know, independent-wise, and it didn't. But then it did overseas. So I had this, you know, I had... And Hollywood had a big, big, big question about me. And Mike Medavoy of TriStar actually said it out loud. All right, not to me, but to uh, actually, to, he actually said it to Bill Unger, the producer of True Romance. And it was, and he literally said, Quentin has a, a voice. Quentin has a very distinctive voice. And the jury is out on whether or not it's a commercial voice or not. The jury is out. Will America accept his voice or not? All right. And the question was very out at that time when it came to um, after, after Reservoir Dogs. And the financial failure of True Romance almost seemed to answer Mike Minavoy's question. And the answer was no. Some cinetists will like it, but America won't embrace it. Um, I'm going to finish my point in just a second, but I just have to say that actually one of my... I love this this camouflage drug talk that they're having on, on, uh, on the phone here. It's, uh, I think this is actually really Clarence just being Clarence, you know, at his, uh, at his ultimate. Kid, you know, has no experience, but he has all the... He has, you know, moxie, all right? Uh, uh, and he's clever. And he, you know, and he doesn't know anything about Hollywood, but he knows everything about, you know, film, like as far as a film geek's concerned. So he can, you know, just through, through sheer moxie, he can talk the talk, all right? And, and gets to where he's going just through his uh, um, personality and initiative and cleverness on the spot. And I really think, really, the whole referring to cocaine as Dr. Shivago is, is one of my more favorite it tickles me constantly whenever I see it again. I just laugh again. I think it's one of the more cleverer things I've done, all right, because it's just, you know, they're talking about a movie. But, you know, when you think about Dr. Shivago, the first thing that comes to your mind is just blankets of snow. So I thought that was pretty clever. All right, but the thing is, now, here was the deal. The whole story behind the true romance was, uh, you know, not doing so well financially, was it was funny because I went to, um, they wanted me to go to the press junket. All right, I was known enough from, from uh, Reservoir Dogs that they requested my presence at the press junket. So 
you know, Christian's doing interviews here, and you know, you know the way it's done in a, uh, in a hotel, you know, Tony's doing interviews there, and Patty's there, and Bronson's there, and I'm in another room. And the press was so positive. The excitement of the movie was so strong that I thought, oh man, this movie's gonna be a smash. And I watched it with audiences, and like, you know, you could not have a more audience-friendly movie if you tried. I mean, the audience just dug it. They laughed, they're just having a blast. And then it opened up and it did very disappointing. And, and I'm in pre-production on Pulp Fiction, which to me, by comparison, I mean, I thought I made a really... I thought I wrote a really wild out there movie when I wrote True Romance, but like to me, True Romance was like commerciality plus compared to pulp compared to Pulp Fiction, and um, I mean Pulp Fiction is so esoteric by comparison uh, that uh, when it didn't do well, I actually thought Mike Medavoy's comment was answered. And this was going to be my lot in life, all right. That you know, I would, you know, um, I would be like a a, a, a respected cult um, director who has his fans, and they can be uh, and they can be fervored, all right. But it's a small group, you know. You know same thing with like you know, certain you know rock musicians or something, you know, like a Lou Reed or a Dave Edmonds and everything. You know, he's never going to be on the radio. He's never going to be on the charts, but they'll have a small, loyal following. And I thought that was kind of, I guess, my lot in life. And True Romance kind of seemed to kind of just prove it. And um, I would, you know, I would never make a hit, you know, what people consider a hit. All right. So I better keep my budgets low so uh, they can, like, at least do okay in a... Uh, cost ratio wise and I remember literally thinking when the when the thing of Truman when Truman's didn't hit uh, in pre-production on Pulp Fiction I go well you know I guess Pulp Fiction isn't going to do well either alright it'll probably do about the same um, so just no that's just that's just what you're doing alright so make the movie as good as you can because it's not going to be <laughs> so you better be happy with it and, and, and try not to spend that much money on it uh, and now the reason at the time you know, they had to, you know, uh, come up, try to come up with a reason why the movie didn't click with audiences. And the reason they came up with it at the time, I think it's a very good reason. It's probably what happened. And that is the fact that um, every single review of the movie, and this happened the same, and this was the same thing with Reservoir Dogs, every single thing hit on the violence of the movie. It, it was like, for this happened in every review of Reservoir Dogs, and this happened in every review of True Romance. That it, uh, like, it was almost like a Surgeon General warning that was added, and we're talking about positive reviews, like a Surgeon General warning that was added to every review of like, okay, you have to be really into extremely graphically violent movies to like this film. Well, I like violent movies, and that might turn me off. All right, uh, it, it was uh, I, I, and as much stuff that came about about the violence in uh, in Pulp Fiction, 
the overt comedy in there kind of lessened that aspect. So they didn't necessarily need to put literally a, a warning about the content of the movie. But every review for True Romance and every review for Reservoir Dogs, all right, literally had a warning, a warning paragraph. And I always thought of this movie as a date movie. This is like the perfect date movie. You take your girl to go see this film, and it's like, it's got fun, it's got action, but it's, uh, uh, it's actually, uh, uh, you know, it's actually very romantic. And uh, I actually always thought that that was one of the ways that why Clarence should die at the end, because um, uh, it I think that's, you know, that's not a bummer. That's not a sad, you know, I mean, you don't want him to die. You know, if you did a, if you did a market, this is where market research screenings go, go to hell. It's like you do a thing on it and you say, okay, uh, how about, how did you like Clarence dying? Well, you know, if you did your job, they're going to say, no, of course we don't like Clarence to die. But that doesn't mean it was a bad experience. That doesn't mean it was a bummer. All right. Uh, it was actually a cathartic experience. You know, if he died and they, they can't get together and you, you cry because of the thwarted love. All right. That's, that's its own cathartic release um uh the thing is though when uh i know also p- people have asked me i get this all the time i'm well, not all the time but I, a lot people go so would you ever do like just like a romance movie and they say knowingly uh you know like you know that's so not what i would do and i go well i i did a romantic movie and uh, true romance no, no, but I mean like a real romantic movie. You know, well, that is a real romantic movie. Or, you know, uh, yeah, there might be other things, you know, uh, like one without violence. I go, well, there'll be a lot of things in any movie I do that they'll be contradictory, but anybody who's a fan of the movie can tell you the title True Romance is not ironic you know i don't really you know half the things that people uh um attribute when it comes to my work as irony they're wrong i mean it i'm not being ironic i mean it they may be too cool to you know mean it so they write an irony but i meant it all right and to, you know the t- title true romance this is true romance and to me this scene not this scene but uh um uh the scene when he uh uh, Virgil, played by James Gandolfini, is beating the shit out of Alabama, is uh, the most romantic scene in the movie. You know, she's, you know, she doesn't tell, uh, she doesn't tell on Clarence. She, uh, uh, you know, she keeps her mouth shut. She, she takes the beating and, and you know, uh, uh, and you know, faces death for him. You know, again, that's the, uh, that's the whole uh, "girl is your pal" thing, and. It's 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 funny because when you look at the, when you uh, they added back to the laser disc and the DVD the European version of the film which has the entire beating of Alabama which was cut to almost nothing all right in the American release version of the film and uh, it's funny it's one of those things where like when you saw the American release version of the movie it didn't bother you because you were just so caught up in the movie but it's just so much better when you see the whole film and uh and you know you see what she has to go through oddly enough the mpaa when it came to the uh, um probably duplicating some things that tony might have said when the mpaa did um uh you know took their scissors to the fight scene 
the thing that they objected to the most was not the beating of Alabama, but it was Alabama fighting back, which is very strange. All right. Um, you know, she gets the shotgun and just completely goes off on uh, um, on Virgil and then, like, stands, uh, straddles him and sits over him and just starts pumping um, uh, uh, shotgun shells into his body and, like, screaming and yelling. The MPAA literally said, okay, you got to get rid of that. I just can't deal with that. And they go, well, why? She's fighting back. It, you know, she's the hero. And, he goes, and they were like, well, it's because she becomes an animal. Uh, I mean, it, I mean, it, I mean, it was... It got to the point of actual story content that they were trying to eliminate. They were elim- trying, literally eliminating story content. Now, I never had to deal with, with, with that kind of stuff with the MPAA. I've always had a wonderful relationship with them. But uh, there is an aspect that almost like, you know, um, Tony and True Romance kind of, um, uh, you know, shed blood for my sins and then uh, I was able to be in an- another place when I started making movies uh, because of what Tony went through on this film one of the uh, interesting things though uh, as time has gone on is most people don't really remember that True Romance didn't do well uh, uh, at the theaters in fact it was I, 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 I chuckled about you know all those thoughts that I had way back when um, I chuckled a bit when I got the uh, 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 letter from uh, Morgan Creek about uh, doing the um, the audio commentary on this because at the bottom of the letter it says something to the effect of, well, as you very well know, True Romance is one of our most popular titles. <laughs> and it's like, oh, well, I'm, yeah, I do know that, and uh, I'm, I'm glad. <laughs> it made me kind of feel kind of cool because over the years... Uh, uh, it's like I think everybody's seen this movie now, all right. You know, at least in America of a certain age, and it's a whole lot of people. It's one of their favorite movies, all right. You know, for some people still, uh, for some people, it's like their favorite movie of mine that I've written. It's my mom's favorite movie of mine, all right, that I wrote because um, she sees me the most in it, and um, and uh, and I can't tell you, I've had. I can't tell you how many times over the course of eight years or so, uh, I've had couples come up to me and say that uh, this is their movie. The way you, like you, uh, people will have a song. This is their movie, and um, I, I even met the. Uh, uh, I think the most famous, or uh, not the most famous, but the. Uh, um, the sexiest of all the uh, playmates of the uh, 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 of the seventies was um, her. Uh, Deborah sort of looked like Kim Bassinger, like way, way before Kim Bassinger. In fact, when Kim Bass- Bassinger came out, I was like, "Hey, she kind of looks like Deborah Jo Fordham." Deborah Jo Fordham. Um, she, uh, I met her and her husband, and she said that this was their favorite movie. This is the movie that they fell uh, in love with, and. They even quoted dialogue in their wedding vows or something, and uh, and that little "you're so cool" note that uh, Alabama passes to Clarence has become like a, a catchword uh, for uh, couples in this kind of uh, in this rela- uh, in relationships where like true romance is like their favorite movie and stuff. And uh, so it's, that's that's 
that's terrific. And you know, it is kind of funny how. Oh, by the way, this is really fucking cool because I I was so I almost applauded when I saw the first time I saw the film when she cracks him over the head with the back of the toilet and the toilet lid doesn't break. I think that's the first time I've ever seen that in a movie. I always bugs the shit out of me when somebody crashes a bottle over somebody's head and it just you know shatters and everything. You know, it's like okay, one bottles usually don't shatter; they stay solid, and what shatters is your skull. All right, so I like that, and the sound is great, machine bashes him in the head okay now this is all that stuff I was talking about that the MPA made them cut out because they said she was just too animalistic I go well you know that's the fucking point that she's animalistic um uh, uh the final thing on this that was really kind of cool uh as far as like you know it's like uh popularity and and uh the way people have embraced it has become one of their favorite movies and stuff is in England where I'm which is probably the place on the globe that I'm the, the most popular in. Well, Reservoir Dogs in England did like okay uh, uh, for an uh, independent film, but was like kind of judged a little harshly because they expected it to do better than okay. Um, it wasn't uh, a little independent film in, in England. It was released as this is the big movie in America. That, I mean, this is the movie in America that everybody's talking about. And so it performed like a big movie. It, it, it was like a smash. All right. And did fantastic. I mean, we like outgrossed uh, America like three to one. All right, so it was a big hit there. I was beating big, huge, you know, The Bodyguard, all these big movies like that. And uh, and in the time it took me to make Pulp Fiction, all right, Reservoir Dogs. <laughs> I like that cut. That's great. His little blowjob scene. Um, in the time that it took. Uh, 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 Pulp Fiction had come out. Reservoir Dogs was such a hit in England that Warner Brothers re-released True, Ro- True Romance in England. <laughs> it had already been released once. They re-released it. And the re-release of it did fantastic. <laughs> so when I actually, literally, I, I come to England, uh, Reservoir Dogs also had ne- was not released for two years on video. They couldn't release it. It wouldn't get a video certificate. And because it didn't get a video certificate, True Romance, uh, Reservoir Dogs played for ye- like two years straight, sometimes a lot of theaters, sometimes a few, played continuously for two years in the theaters in England. And then True Romance got re-released. And so literally I go to England to do the publicity uh, for Pulp Fiction. And... Both True Romance and Reservoir Dogs are still playing in the cinemas. I mean, that's like, that was pretty wild. Now, okay, so now we're back into the flow of the film. Okay, this is uh, the two cops, Nicolette and Dimes. And I remember like writing in the script that they were like a couple of Starsky and Hutch guys. And my whole attitude about it is once Nicolette and Dimes come into the movie, they should kind of like, uh, 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 they should take it over as far as like whenever like their scenes are concerned. But now that's kind of actually set up for all the characters. In an interesting way, it's like, you know, Clarence and Alabama are the characters you're following through the movie. But whenever they meet, you know, Clarence's father or, you know, anybody, you know, any of the big characters in the film, they are almost supporting those characters. Those characters take over the movie. I'm stopping talking for a little bit, just kind of watching it. You know, they asked me the question. I was going to do this. 
about whether or not uh, I like that actor. By the way, let me just stop for just two seconds. I really like that actor Ed Lauder. I've liked him for a long, long, long time. In particular, I mean, he's he's done a zillion movies and everything. But I think the movie that I liked him the most in is uh, a film he did called Lolly Madonna XXX. He was really it's a Hibbley feud movie. It was really good. Okay, now this scene is extremely autobiographical um oh i just love the whole idea that like you know they're sitting on an abandoned couch all right uh uh on the side of the road you know convalescing her and everything but um having them sit there by the airport by lax all right and then um and talking this whole speech he talks about living next to a uh airport in dearborn and you know about how <laughs> Uh, how it's a uh, uh, it's a real drag, man. You know, to uh, uh, be broke and live by an airport because all day long, all you see and all you hear are people doing all the things you want you want to do but can't. You know, leave here, <laughs> go on adventures, uh, experiences, vacations. Fun, fun, fun. Um, which kind of sounds like um, you know, it's one part of that that actually sounds more like a written line, but I still kind of like it anyway. Um, well, that was me, man. You know, that was me. I grew up in the South Bay area, which, like, the biggest, you know, the most famous thing in the South Bay, all right, is uh, uh, LAX. And when I did Jackie Brown, I, I reset it in the South Bay. And <laughs> the thing that's kind of funny about the movie is, by the way, oh, you know that poster there? I don't like. One of the things that I don't like in the film is the uh, um, the movie posters on the wall because they seem production designed rather than uh, coming from any of the, the the characters in the movie. One, it's like you know uh, these guys are too poor to be able to afford to uh, uh, frame every poster that they have. I mean, there's about uh, about four thousand dollars worth of framing going on there all right and these starving dudes starving actors do not have the money to frame all these posters and when they they would be stuck up with push pins uh highway 301 remember i'm going to come back to that um and they don't seem you know they seem random they were put there by the they look like they were put there by the production designer they um i really don't see Dick Ritchie or Floyd being this huge reflections in a golden eye fan, all right, and they're going to put it on. So they were they were put there for aesthetic reasons, not 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 based out of character. However, having said all that, Highway 301 is one I kind of like there because that's a really terrific director named Andrew L. Stone, who's like one of my favorite, who's you know one of my favorite neglected directors. Uh, him and his wife uh, Virginia Stone they did a bunch of cool movies together, and so while I, uh, it always annoyed me that the posters were so anonymous and not character based, uh, uh, I have now since forgiven it because uh, uh, through inattention uh, the inclusion of Highway 301 was put in there. Um, that sequence right there when uh, Dick Ritchie gets the phone call. Boy, talk about a, 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 a casting a dream, all right, as far as like a, a, you know, the character of a girlfriend or something like that. Actually winning an acting role. 
actually going out of the auditions, and then all of a sudden you get the call from your manager or your agent, all right, that you won the role. You got it, all right. Boy, that was a dream, all right. And uh, Michael Rappaport did that great, all right. That was uh, uh, as far away as a girlfriend seemed at the time I wrote that, all right. Uh, getting a part on T.J. Hooker seemed even further away. Um, uh, oh, and by the way, one last little thing in there. Uh, this is a good scene. Bernstein Pichot does such a good job in this film. Um, uh, his actually his name, Elliot Blitzer. That's a good actor, a very good actor. Uh, he doesn't have much to do in the film. He gets he, uh, you see him next to the black guy. You see him next to these two guys, and he gets uh, later he gets shot in the stomach on the couch. Is uh, Michael Beach, who's a really terrific actor. He's done, does a lot of stuff. I think he's on a Third Watch now. Um, and uh, um, oh, what was I saying? Uh, I forgot what I was saying. Yeah. Must have been a lie. Okay. Hi. How are you? My name's Elliot, and I'm with the Cub Scouts of America. <laughs> <laughs> that was Bronson Pichot's thing. I didn't write that, but that was a good bit. I like that. Oh yeah, I, I know what I was saying now. Uh, I hope they don't cut that out. I like that kind of stuff. Um, um. Bronson Pichot's character, uh, Elliot Blitzer, was based on a guy I knew in my acting class. He's not really like that guy or anything like that. I just, uh, uh, I just always kind of like remembered him a little bit, and you know, and uh, uh, I always remembered his name. I, uh, Elliot, if you're out there, I hope you auditioned. Um, I really do. And if I had directed it, you would have. Um, I don't know if you'd have played it. You'd have had to win it. All right, uh, but yeah, you would have auditioned. Now, coming up is a scene that I, I think they're putting some deleted scenes back in the movie, and it's one of the deleted scenes I hope they put back in the movie, is um, it's one of the only things that I kind of uh, uh, really tried to really make my case that they had cut out of the film, and again, not seeing the whole film, just on the editing you know, flatbed, that I really argued to try to put back in the film. And Tony's got a great arguing style, all right? I mean, it couldn't be better, um, you know, to get what he wants. Because you sit there and you make a very impassioned... It's about this scene right here. I'll go back to it. It makes a very impassioned case. Uh, you make a very impassioned case and he's listening and he's listening and he's listening. He's kind of nodding his head and you think, oh, I'm convincing him, all right? He doesn't change anything. <laughs> um, and that's... Um, Playing on the fact that we know what's up there, what's waiting for them. They're going to get busted, all right? And we even know the, the gangsters are on their way. But, you know, I mean, Clarence and Alabama are going to go to jail for this, all right? And we're supposed to love these kids by this time. And we, like, you know, don't go. We want, we want to internally be saying, don't go up there, don't go up there, don't go up there. And what the scene is, is, you know, he says that, like, okay, it's better to have a gun and not to need it than to need a gun and not to have it. And he's walking up there, and then what I had him do is he goes, you know what? I changed my mind. Let's just get out of here. We don't need it. All right? And I want the audience to go, ah, oh, yes, thank you. Oh, goodness gracious. And they start walking away, and everything's great. You know, uh, Elliot's happy. Uh, Alabama's happy. He goes, nah, forget it. I'm just, I'm wrong. Elliot's just a producer. It's good, you know. I mean, I mean, Lee's just a producer. It's good. You know, so it's like you like you take the audience off the hook, and like, ah, all right. Then you put it back on the hook, and they go, ah! That was the idea behind that scene, which I hope is in the uh, supplementary stuff. Um... I love this scene. 
I think this. I think Christian is great in this scene. And again, I like the idea that the audience is like, "What the fuck is just like Alabama is just like uh, 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 Dick Ritchie is." All right, I like the fact that uh, uh, you know, the audience is like, "What the fuck is he doing? He's flipping out. What's going on?" And maybe you might even like question Clarence a little bit, but Clar- you know, but it's no. Clarence is an actor. Clarence is a good actor. He's gonna like act like he's just gonna execute him and just bring the truth out of him. And then you know, Elliot says, "Is you know, talking." talking to his wire and they don't know it and Clarence feels all bad oh it's okay man you're okay you're okay <laughs> I like the scene uh, you know what I really think like I said before I think this is maybe one of the funniest scenes in the movie and it like if you never saw it in the theater you kind of you, you, you missed out on the audience's reaction to this scene because it's just this accumulative laugh that grows and grows and grows with each one of uh, um, um, Floyd's appearances. And by the time they show up this last time and Brad Pitt just starts busting out laughing and stuff, uh, the audience is just pissing their fucking pants. All right. Uh the whole movie at this point, you know, you know, by the time the gangsters show up, just adding one little element to you know an already heightened situation, just the laughter is just the laughter in the audience just kept accumulating and accumulating. It's like no wonder we all thought it was going to be a smash hit because like you know, you just couldn't have a better time at the theaters. All right, uh, as far as like an audience seeing an audience reaction movie with an audience than True Romance at that time, it was just terrific that way. Sorry. Okay. That daily, the, that 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 helicopter shit footage up there, is from Platoon. <laughs> you bring that. Uh, that's like dailies from Platoon that they got the rights to to, to show. So I mean, you know, uh, people have like joked about that I was make that I was like doing a parody of Platoon. All right, uh, that that's the movie that they're talking about, and <laughs> it's just capped all off by the fact that uh, <laughs> uh, the footage uh, that they're actually watching the footage of Platoon um, you know uh, for <laughs> coming home in a body bag too um, now okay now you know I've, I've pretty much talked about all the the big the big overreaching themes and subtexts of the movie. Now I'm just going to kind of like shut up and just kind of watch the movie. And if I guess something to say, unwatchable movies from unreadable books. All right. That is so good. The bad and the ugly. That's a movie. Rio Bravo. That's a movie. And coming home in a body bag. That was a fucking movie. Okay. That is so exactly my philosophy. Am I feeling about movies at that time and being a an opinionated movie geek. All right. Uh, you know, it's really funny because um, one of the things about being a movie geek, and it was one of the biggest things that I noticed when I actually got to Hollywood and, and like, you know, got up to a certain area where I wasn't dealing with, like, you know, the low-budget dudes, but I was dealing with uh, um, the real, dealing with uh, um, more legitimate people who make films is one thing that a movie geek kind of has in his corner. Two things that the movie geek has in his corner is he probably knows a hell of a lot more about movies, right? not about how to make them, but movies than most of the people, you know, uh, not the filmmakers, but the other, other people who, the, who make movies. All right, he probably has more of a history of like what he likes and what he doesn't like and the history of movies. All right, and it's not 
based on box office dollars, based on uh, um, you know what they respond to. Two, a lot of people in Hollywood, you know, the agents and and uh, executives and everything like that, they don't have strong opinions. They have opinions. But they're not necessarily guided by their opinions. They're guided by information, and they're guided by uh, uh, conventional wisdom. A movie geek will dedicate their entire life to cinema. All right, and you know, not because they're making any money from it. Most geeks never make any money from their passion and their obsessions. All right. Uh, you know, not for money, not for position, not for anything other than just the sheer love of it. And the only thing they have to show for this 100% uh, devotion to an art form, the only thing they have to show is their opinion. Their finely crafted, highly tuned opinion. All right, uh, and then that, and they'll fight for that to the death. Well, and Clarence has an opinion. He's like saying them all over the place. Well, you know what? Having a strong opinion in Hollywood is uh, is like a superpower because a lot of people don't. And um, and there's a, there's an old uh, 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 adage, all right, that uh, somebody told me. Uh, I remember, I know who told it to me. It was one of the executive producers on a uh, uh, Pulp Fiction, Stacy Sher. She told me early on uh, when I first started like working in Hollywood, you know, she'd been around for like a little bit. You know, she's a young gal, but she'd been around before I was. Um, she said, uh, she goes, Quentin, you got a good situation because the way it kind of works in Hollywood, there's the, you're so cool note. The way it kind of works in Hollywood is when you go into a meeting to do, a, you know, have a, you go into a room to have a meeting, the one with the strongest opinion in the room wins. Well, <laughs> I normally have the strongest opinion in the room. <laughs> so that's, I've kind of went okay. And that's exactly how Clarence is doing this right here, right now. And, uh, uh, but also that whole little, like, okay, real brothers movie. And, uh, that was the first movie since Deer Hunter to win the Oscars with any kind of balls. You know, I was coming off of the 80s, where it was like, uh, every movie that was like sweeping the Oscars, all right, was, you know, uh, how did you say it? Coffee table book bullshit, all right, you know. And, um, you know, you know, they had a lack of ball. Some of them even had a lack of point of view. Um, they were just kind of trying to be Oscar machines, everything for everybody. And, uh, and after like following the academy for years and years and years, I actually got disinterested in in the academy and in, in the Oscars at some point in the eighties. But things kind of changed in the nineties. I have to say, I think the academy is in a great shape right now. I hate fucking cops. <laughs> I like that line. Let's be nice, guys. Come on, let's be nice. We don't want to die. You don't. You look like a nice And I like this whole situation. This is a great. You look like the blonde Frankenstein. Okay, that was a Chris. That was a Chris Penn added line. Uh, but I like that whole thing in there. Uh, uh, like the audience, when they read the script or when they watched the movie, when all of a sudden the bo- you know, Lee's bodyguards are like, Lee's thing I had to tell you, I hate fucking cops. I'm like, Jesus Christ, these bodyguards are out of control too. Everybody's out of control. Okay. Now, 
One of the things, I'm going to clear up something right here, right now. And this is the way it is. This is the truth. All right. Um, obviously, I love Mexican standoffs. All right. Uh, you know, I love spaghetti westerns and I love the, uh, the whole showdown aspect and the music playing and whatever. But, you know, you, that just doesn't exist in our, in, in, in our world today. A Mexican standoff. My gun's on you, and your gun's on me, and we either going to shoot each other or figure a way out of it. All right. Um, is the closest equivalent to a Western showdown in modern times. And, um, and it's an incredible dilemma. All right. It's, 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 it's just made for drama. And, and with the exception of natural born killers, I even think there's one in natural born killers, but I can't, it's 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 uh, it's not a big deal, memorable one, I don't think. But I've always I'd always put Mexican standoffs in uh, my first few movies. All right, True Romance, boom, as this you know whole big sequence. All right, Reservoir Dogs ends with a Mexican standoff. Pulp Fiction ends with a Mexican standoff. All right. Um, and I think the first time I ever heard that expression where I knew what a Mexican standoff was was an episode of Police Story, all right, that starred uh, James Ferentino and Fred Williamson. And James Ferentino is trying to bust uh, Fred Williamson, who's this pimp. And they get into a situation where uh, they were, like, sitting in a cocktail bar, and uh, uh, James Ferentino pulls a gun on Fred Williamson and Fred Williamson has a gun on him underneath the table and then Fred Williamson goes, ah, it looks like we got a Mexican standoff going here and I've always remembered that. Now, to clear up something that has followed me for a long time, all right, um, I've always been, you know, from the, from the moment I had a voice, to say something, you know, there were people who, like give a damn about my opinion. And I, I gotta tell you, half the reason him working in video archives as a film geek, half the reason I wanted to be famous is so I could like say my opinions and people could like maybe appreciate them, um, as opposed to just saying, "Ah, he's a cockamamie, crazy movie guy." Um, from the moment that I had a voice to say something about, I uh, I immediately started pushing um, Hong Kong films big power. I actually think they make the most visceral cinema in the world, all right, uh, of all time, conceivably. And um, and I was a big fan of John Woo, and I said John Woo's name, but I, I, I talked about a lot of people, all right, at that time, you know, from the minute that I, I from the minute I had a little light to shine, I shined it on them, because I really respected their aesthetic and what it was they were trying to do in movies. Now, having said that, uh, because I've always pushed John Woo all this credit and everything, everyone has said, oh, well, Quentin got his Mexican standoffs from John Woo. All right. And then you add it into the whole, like, City on Fire thing, which has a Mexican standoff. All right. But sometimes they bring, mention City on Fire, but a lot of times people just talk about um, uh, the fact that I had a Mexican standoff and they would always attribute it to John Woo. All right. And in this movie, not only that, they're even watching a John Woo movie. Uh, in the um, in the apartment. Well, let me set the record straight here. Okay, I wrote True Romance. In um, it was when did I write it? It was uh, um, 
86. It was 86. And you know what? I should have done, uh, uh, I should have maybe researched this, but I'm just saying it off the top of my head. I should maybe, re- I always forget, I always re- um, should have researched exactly what year it was. But if you get your Leonard Maltons on TV guide, and you look in that, and you look for the movie Tough Guys Don't Dance, directed by uh, Norman Mailer. <laughs> uh, the year that that movie came out was the year that I finished writing True Romance, because I actually remember going to see True, Rom- uh, going to see uh, Tough Guys Don't Dance, like uh, uh, that weekend that I finished writing True Romance. <laughs> so that was the year. I think it's like it's either uh, uh, eighty-five or eighty-six. Maybe it's eighty-seven. I don't know. But the point being, other than old-school kung fu movies which is like, you know, uh, the ones in the 70s, like, you know, the Shaw Brothers films and the, uh, 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 you know, some of the early Jackie Chan films and then, uh, you know, Bruce Lai movies and stuff. Um, and I said Bruce Lai, not Bruce Lee. Um, I'm a big fan of Bruce Lai. Um, from that moment, on, from that moment uh, I hadn't seen the new wave of Hong Kong movies of like John Woo and the modern, what they call a, a heroic bloodshed films. So, when I wrote this script and I wrote this sequence, I hadn't seen the... I I didn't know who John Woo was. All right, I'm not saying he hadn't made Better Tomorrow 1 and 2 by that time, but I hadn't seen him. I wasn't to see them, like, for another, like, uh, 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 three or four years later. All right? So, the very first... This is my first script. My very first Mexican standoff scene... I ever put in it uh, was ever in a movie you know, that I ever put that I ever put, wrote in my stuff came from my obsessions with Mexican standoffs. All right, that I've always wanted to utilize them. So you know, by the time the movie was made, you know, I was already a John Woo fan and seen a bunch of other stuff and whatever. But like, as far as writing it, the very first time, uh, you know, it was not influenced by Hong Kong movies. It's what I'd always wanted to do. You know, so I was kind of semi. I, I have no problem taking anything I want. I have no problem. You know, uh, I believe uh, great artists don't bar, don't do homages; they steal. N- neophytes do homages. You know, artists steal. But that was something I didn't steal. That, as far as I'm concerned, Mexican standoffs are as much mine as they are anybody else's. Okay, now the closest thing I ever came to a Mexican standoff with Tony Scott was about the end and uh, what happened was he wanted to change the ending and I remember coming to him very impassioned and saying Tony don't change the ending don't don't not for commercial bullshit reasons you know you know it's like you're the man that made revenge I love revenge so much. You're the man that made revenge. You know, and she dies in the end of revenge. And it's what makes the movie so romantic, by the way. Uh, you've probably heard it before in the other commentaries. That's Enzo. That is uh, Petty Arquette's uh, son in real life. Um, Elvis. Elvis Whirly. Um And the thing is, it's like, uh, Tony was able to combat me very passionately on his own part and said, Quentin, I am not doing it. To make it a Hollywood movie. I am not doing it to try to turn it into something it's not. I want to do it. It's not for commercial reasons. It's not for Hollywood reasons. I want to do it because I love these two kids and I want to see them get away. It's just I love them and I want them to get away with it. 
And well, I mean, that's a valid thing, all right? And so what he told me, because, you know, I was going to try to be real tough, but I don't know what it is about Tony Scott, but I just am just a complete pussycat in Tony's hands. I just, um, he can probably talk me into doing anything. Um, but what happened is he said, Here, here's the deal, Quentin. What I'll do is um, I will shoot both endings. And I will make the decision when I'm editing which one to go with. Well, you know, I could have said, no, you can't do that or whatever. But, you know, I just figured, you know, that's that's uh, uh, you know that's about as much as you can ask. You know, uh, you can't ask for more than that. So that's what he did. And now I got to say, um, I think Tony's ending is better for the movie Tony made. Uh, I remember telling him that at the premiere. He goes, ah, I've, I've brainwashed you. And he really didn't. It is a thing, though, where uh, um, with the movie Tony made, which is much more of a fairy tale, even though, it, I mean, it's this, I mean, I say it's the thing, one of the things that I love the most about the movie, you know, not the script, I can just sit down and read the script. All right, it's the fact that he did my script pretty, you know, except for changing, um, the structure he did my script pretty much exactly all right um but he uh, uh um but he did what a director is supposed to do he inter you know he made the material his own he interpreted it and in the interpretation that tony did on it it became much more mine was romantic of a, of it was all these things character. but it, it didn't have the it didn't have a fairy tale aspect to it and his had a fairy tale aspect to it. And in that this movie, with that kind of fairy tale aspect going on on it, um, I think he's right. Uh, it should have ended a little bit more like a like a fairy tale. I think he, uh, it, you know, they shouldn't have died. You can almost make the point to one degree or an another that. Uh, um, the movie hadn't earned a tragedy ending, which is interesting. Uh, I think that's a good point. Now, if I had made the movie, he would have died. But I wouldn't have made, I would have been the same script, but it would have been different. And, uh, and in mine, I think it would have worked. But in his, uh, no. In his, uh, this movie, the movie that we were watching, uh, I think he was right. Yeah, I think he was 100% right, actually. Uh, so, uh, that's it for the True Romance Quentin Tarantino track of the alternative track. And I had a good time doing it. Hope you had an okay time listening to it. <laughs>